I'm going to do something quite unusual. Never done this before. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh oh. We're going to take a survey, a poll. Being around election time coming up, I'm sure there's a lot of polls going out. I'm going to ask you four different, I'm going to make four different statements. And now I'm a teacher. And it's hard to get 100% participation in anything among students. But I'm pretty sure you'll be good students here today. I'm going to give you four theological questions. And if you agree, I want you to raise your hand. Pretty simple. You can nod your head if you understand what's required of you. Okay, yeah, great participation there. Here's the first question. And this is the easy one, okay? No pressure. <clears throat> first question, or first statement is this. God hates sin, but loves the sinner. God hates sin, but loves the sinner. Raise your hand if you agree with that. Okay, excellent. Since Phil is not here, let the record show that pretty much everyone raised their hands. Now let's try the opposite of that. How about God loves sin and hates the sinner? Raise your hand if you agree with that one. Oh, excellent. Nobody has their hand raised with that. Okay, there's two possibilities. Now I only see two other possibilities in this line of reasoning. How about God loves sin and he loves the sinner? Raise your hand if you think that's true. Nobody? Okay, good, good. Last one. God hates sin, and he hates the sinner. Raise your hand if you believe that. I see one hand, two. One and a half. <laughs> one and a half. Now, there is a purpose to this. Just remind yourself of how you voted, what you think, because we're going to come back to that. We're going to be in Psalm 8 today. I invite you to open up your Bibles and turn to Psalm 8. The title of the message this morning is Yahweh, our Adonai. It's taken from, well, the two Hebrew names for God, and it's taken from the first part of Psalm 8 here. O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, our Adonai. We are seeking to answer three basic questions that are essential to answer correctly in any church. If we at Redemption Hill are going to stand soundly on God's word, we must answer these three questions correctly. First one is, who is the Lord? The second question is, how can I know this Lord? How can I be saved? And the third question is, how can I have assurance that I am saved? How do I know I'm saved? Three essential questions to answer. And we're going to find the answers to these all in Psalm 8. 
Psalm 8, beginning in verse 1. A Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, you know our hearts. You know who we are. You know what we are, Lord. You know our motivations for being here this morning. You know the secret recesses, the secret places in our hearts that we are even not so sure of. Oh, speak, Lord, to us. Be gracious. Reveal yourself to our hearts this morning. Whether we be saved or even if we be lost, Lord, there is a great work to be done a work that is too great for words, Lord. Too great for words. Lord, we... We seek to know you better. Lord, I seek to follow you more closely, to even taste in a greater way and to know that you are good. So, Father... Glorify your name here. Make your presence known. Oh, Lord, even give us a greater and greater measure of the Spirit, Lord. A greater and greater measure of the Spirit. Fall down upon our, this place and shake our lives so that we might not be the same. May your word do what it claims to do, Lord to be that sharp, double-edged sword. We hold our hearts in our hands before you, Lord, and we ask that you would reveal to us where we stand before you today. Lord, you know, but we need to know. Open our minds to the realities of your word and your truth. so that the name of Jesus will be honored in our lives. And it's in that name that we pray, the name that saves. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Who is the Lord? The greatness of the psalm is found in the first word, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's almost as David is putting right out in front what is truly most important. If we stumble on this point, the rest of the psalm really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'm reminded of this, and it's just coming to my mind right now. <clears throat> when I was a very young Christian, I, I picked up this book. Couldn't have been saved more than three, four months. And it was a book written by A.W. Tozer, and it was called The Knowledge of the Holy. And in the first chapter, in the opening paragraphs, he makes a pretty bold claim. Now, I don't have the book in front of me. I haven't written it down in my notes. My notes are pretty short. But this is Tozer. He says, What a man perceives God to be is the most important thing about that man. What a man perceives God to be is the most important thing about that man. And I remember reading that, and it was like a slap to the face. I just wondered, man, is that true? It's a pretty bold claim. So I went into Scripture. As God saved me, I had a greater love for Scripture. And I think in all of my search, I have to say, yeah, it's absolutely true. Think of the Scripture reading that even went on this morning. Some people knew the Lord, the Israelites. They had been crying out to them from the bondage of Egypt and God had sent word through his messengers, Aaron and Moses. They knew the Lord and they knew that redemption was soon to come. And so they worshipped. Their thought of who God was impacted their lives. Now the contrast to that was Pharaoh. Pharaoh. He probably, with a snide look, maybe even of disgust, maybe mocking Moses and Aaron, when he claims, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? He didn't know the Lord. He thought that Yahweh was just like the other gods of Egypt. And in fact, probably inferior. Now, that impacted his life greatly. You can read everything that it says about the Pharaoh, and none of it is good. He's an enemy of God. Oftentimes, he's an example of a personification of evil in the scriptures. God's enemy. And it really all boils down to the fact that he had just a bad view of who God was. And that influenced his whole life. Even after the ten plagues, what does Pharaoh do? Yeah, he lets the Israelites go. But notice his view of God still wasn't right. Or else he would have begged Moses, let me come with you. 
Let me worship this God. All the riches of Egypt are nothing compared to knowing this Lord that you serve who is mighty to save, mighty to redeem a people for his own possession and glory. So who is the Lord? That is an important question that impacts every second of every day of our lives. I was very nervous getting up here. I, I just praised the Lord for this, him comforting me. Uh, I didn't speak to, to Mark about this, but I mean, the Lord must have obviously put this on him. I want you to turn to Psalm 5. I want to start reading in verse 4. Scripture that was read before we even began our worship to God in singing. And I want this to humble us. And I want you to hear the words of this and hear what I have to say about it. And really the question is, is this true? Psalm 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. I want to lay before you something that I think is obvious. I don't do this in any prideful way whatsoever. It's only by God's grace and opening up my eyes to what this passage says that I could say this. Does God love the sinner and hate the sin? Yes. But does God also hate the sinner? and hate their sin? According to this verse, yes. Look at it again. First of all, he goes out and says, David says that God hates sin. If you are not a God who delights in wickedness, that's the sin. You don't delight in that sin. Evil may not dwell with you. That sin cannot be in your presence. Habakkuk says that in chapter 1, that God's eyes are too pure to look upon evil. Okay, so we got that. God hates sin. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Here it is. You hate all evildoers. He does not say you hate the evil that these people do. You hate the evil doers. You destroy the people who do these lies, who speak lies. You abhor the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, this is an interesting contrast. I think both are true. This is the amazing aspect of God, about God. God is so loving towards sinners. 
so merciful and so patient and so kind and so long-suffering. But he also hates them because sin comes from them. Why do I bring this up? It is to say this. This knowledge of who is the Lord, we all have work to do in that. We don't, with our minds, totally grasp God. I made it my business of studying who is the Lord for 10 years, and I barely got a pinky on God. He is so amazing, so far beyond words. And so if we're going to be a church that worships the Lord in spirit and in truth, it needs to be our great desire to know the Lord in a greater and greater and greater way every day. Who is the Lord? There's a lot of misconceptions in a lot of people's minds. Some people view the Lord as a big genie in the sky or a Santa Claus, a divine Santa Claus. If only I have enough faith, I could stiff-arm God to do what I want to do. I could bend His will to meet my will. Just turn on the TV and... I'm going to tell you, probably 90, 95% of people on TV, that's their message about the Lord. And it puts man in charge, and it lowers God. I forget the man who said this, but it's brilliant. He said, God created man in his own image, and ever since that time, man has tried to repay the favor. We're trying to make God in our own image. A God that's a politically correct God. A God that we could totally figure out and manipulate and control. A God who is all loving but is not wrathful. Who is the Lord? Let's let his word speak. Yahweh, or the Lord here, all in capital letters. It comes from the Hebrew word to be. And any Hebrew mind would refer back to Moses at the burning bush. That's where it comes from. This is where this name originates at. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, as Moses is called by God and sees this bush that is on fire but is not consumed, he comes before God and God, this holy Lord, says, take off your sandals, Moses. And the Lord proclaims right before him, here is your mission. You're going to go and tell the Israelites this message and you are going to go stand before the Pharaoh and you are going to tell him to let God's people go. Moses asks a pretty good question. 
What if they don't believe me? It's been 400 years since you've spoken to us, Lord. Generations have come and gone. What if they don't believe? Who shall I say sent me? What is your name? What if they ask your name? And the Lord says in Exodus 3.14, you tell them this, I am who I am. You tell them, I am sent you. That is where that name comes from. And let's skip forward. And I do want us to turn our Bibles here. Who is the Lord? Let's look in Exodus chapter 33. Fast forward in the book of Exodus. And Moses has already gone into Egypt. He has confronted the Pharaoh. Uh, God has sent ten plagues. And with the death of the firstborn in the tenth plague, God used that to pass over the Israelites, really decimating the Egyptian society. And because of that, there was a redemption that was paid. There was an um, exodus out of Egypt. God redeemed his people. They go to uh, and travel through the desert. There is much going on, and there is some complaining going on, but God is faithful, and he keeps his words to Moses. They go to Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai. Moses goes up, gets the two tablets, comes back down, and those 40 days and nights when he was on the mountain, the Israelites were in idolatry. He takes the tablets and he thrusts them down. A visual picture that the Israelites had broken their covenant, broken God's law. He pleads with God. Pleads with them. Oh Lord, forgive these people. Forgive them for your own namesake. Don't take us out here and destroy us. What will other people say about you? That God just saved the people from Egypt? That take them out in the middle of the desert and kill them all? And God promises to be with Moses. He promises to lead them into the promised land. But Moses in some way is discouraged. He's already faced much hardship. His leadership position has been very, very, very difficult. Very difficult. And one thing is going to give him confidence and courage to continue. He needs to know the Lord in a greater way. Exodus 33, let's begin in verse 18. Actually, verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you, Moses, have found favor in my sight. I know you, Moses, by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will proclaim to you Yahweh. 
and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I shall mercy. But, God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So the Lord said, Behold, there is this place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout, throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds gaze, graze upon the opposite of the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai. And the Lord had commanded him and took in his hands the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed, he proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. Now here it is. Who is the Lord? A God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Who is the Lord? That is the Lord. So gracious, so loving, so kind, so patient. But just, holy, wrathful, indignant towards sin. The one who punishes a holy, holy God. The Lord is the creator. He's transcendent. He's omnipotent. He is the one who is present everywhere. He is imminent. He is the one who is immutable and does not change. He is the one who is worthy to be worshipped. Magnificent in glory and splendor. Seated in heaven. In a place so holy that even angels fear to tread in. be wrong for me to stop there and go on to the second question. 
it would be a horrendous abuse of me standing up here and to just move on. Who is the Lord? In the upper room, Jesus knowing that that night he would be betrayed, knowing that he would go to the Garden of, Gethsemane, Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he would be handed over. He is equipping and preparing his disciples for what would soon come. That he had to go. But it was good that he would go because he would prepare a room in his father's house for his disciples. That it was good that he would go because he would send his spirit to indwell them and all believers. And Philip, confused, looks to Jesus and asks the question, Would you show us the Father, and that is enough? Would you show us the Father? I don't know what a Jesus' expression was. I'm sure there had to be some sorrow in there, because he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Philip, have you been with me for so long, and you ask me to show you the Father? Don't you know, Philip? that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, Jesus said. Who is the Lord? He was a man who was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. A man was a friend of sinners, an enemy of the religious hypocrites. He's the eternal God who clothed himself in humanity and chose to be born a helpless baby. Who is the Lord? Yeshua, Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. Might I ask you, can you say this with confidence in your life? Can you say this with conviction of heart? It's the most important thing about us. Do we truly trust in Jesus as our Lord? If we do, it's going to impact how we live today. It's easy to live for Jesus on Sundays. 
but it should impact our Mondays through Saturdays as well. It should impact when we're with other believers. It should impact us when we're in the world. And it should impact us when we're alone. And nobody else is watching except the Lord. Are we convinced that the Lord is Jesus? Let's look back in Psalm 8. Let's look at our next question to be answered. How can I be saved? How can I know this Jesus? How can my sins be washed away? How can I experience the richness of his grace? How can I be a new creation? Oh, Lord, our. Lord. Focus in on the word our. David could have written, he could have wrote, The Lord, oh, Lord, the Lord. But it's going deeper than that. No, he's our Lord. It reminds me of probably one of the greatest professions of faith that we see in Scripture by a man that we get the phrase Doubting Thomas from. And yet, he sees the resurrected Christ and he cries out, My Lord and my God. He knew a Savior. Doubt was washed away. How can I be saved? I want you to know there's great confusion about this. Let's look in Mark chapter 1, and it's very clear. Mark chapter 1. Verse 15. Here's Jesus. He's coming in the Galilee and he's proclaiming the gospel of God. And what Mark is doing here is in one verse summing up all of Jesus' teaching. It is. That's all he's doing. He's narrowing it down And he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. All too often we hear things, and we hear them so much, that we start to believe that they're true, even though the Lord hasn't said it. That's presumption, when we believe something that the Lord hasn't said. I don't know, but there's a lot of people who are greatly confused about this verse. It has no place in their lives. They would render it this way. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Therefore... 
pray this little prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. And yet, you will find that nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere. I want you to know nobody has been saved by that. God might save some people despite that. Where is repentance in there? Where is repentance from sin? It's a sad, sad state. And think about it. There's so much confusion in just so many places about this. Well, you must believe in Jesus, but you also must be baptized to be saved. I didn't see baptism in there. You must believe in Jesus, but you also must speak in tongues to confirm your salvation. A lot of churches teach that. I don't see it there. You must raise your hand when everybody else's head is bowed and the preacher asks you to invite Jesus into your heart. I want you to know most of the time that's just manipulation. Sit in a church where they do that. Sit in the back. And when the preacher, you know, you know when it's coming, when he says, bow your heads, close your eyes, just keep your head up and watch. Watch the pastor, they do this all the time, say, I see that hand, I see that hand, I see that hand. And nobody's hands are up. They do. They do. And then after other people are hearing that, like, oh, okay. And then you'll start seeing some hands up. Shouldn't that perturb us that the man who is supposed to be speaking for God is up there lying? I see that hand when no hands are up. Really, it boils down to this. And we'll get into what is true here. A lot of people have taken the supernatural out of salvation, that it is a work of God. And we have boiled it down to that if we do this, X and Y, then God will do Z and he'll save us. Because salvation is a pretty amazing thing. It is a work of God to create in us a new, pure heart. I'm sure you've tried to do some New Year's resolutions. I'm sure you've tried to save, or I'm sure you tried to change yourself. How often does that actually work? And if we can't even control the little things on the outside in our lives, how can we change our hearts? It has to be a supernatural work of God if it is the last. 
Why is it, and it just seems to be in America, I'm gonna describe right now 70% of salvation, what people claim to be salvation. Here it is. When I was five or maybe six or seven or eight years old, I was saved in church or at a vacation Bible school. I asked Jesus into my heart. But then, when I was about 14 or 15, I started to really rebel against my parents. They really didn't do a whole lot because I made a profession of faith and thought I was saved. Then I got 18, 19, 20, went away to the college and got drunk and was in parties and fornicated and did all kinds of evil things. And then by about the time I was 25 or 30, I rededicated my life to Christ and came into the church. I've just described to you 70% of conversions, so-called conversions in America. 70%. Now, they might have been saved at 25 or 30, but that is actually salvation, not a rededicating their life to Christ. They were actually saved then. I'm rededicating my life to Christ. Um, Try finding that in Scripture. I find repentance again, but no rededication. (laughs) What does Jesus say? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. In, in, In a sense, it's this. The Messiah is here. The Messiah has come. The Christ is amongst us. So whatever you do, you better do it quickly. Be quick about it. And then he gives two commands. Repent and believe the gospel. What is repentance? In a, in a sense, it's just a change. That's all it means. It's a change. Very simply, it's a change. We have to stop and ask ourselves the questions. Have we changed? The sin that we so loved... We might not have done it when other people were around, but when we were alone, we loved it. Love it. Does that sin now break your heart? I'm not saying you're perfect and you never do those things. I know I don't. I struggle with it every day of my life. But does it break your heart? Oh, Jesus, help me. I'm sorry. Do you have a new relationship with sin? The sin that you used to love, you now hate? One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Isaiah 66, verse 2. God says, this is the one whom I will look at. He's basically saying, here's the one who I am gazing upon in favor. He who is humble and contrite a spirit and who trembles at my word. Have we had this change in ourselves where the world no longer revolves around us, but rather we are humble, we are broken over our sin, we're contrite in spirit, we tremble at the word of God, the law that we have broken. Feeling so guilty and therefore coming before God and with nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. 
That is the one whom God looks at. That is the repentant heart where God says, you have my favor. My eyes are upon you. Well done. Repentance is a supernatural work, and I'm sure as Phil goes through this in Acts 11, 18, after the conversion of the Gentile Cornelius, Peter has to go back into Jerusalem and report what had happened amongst the Gentiles. And it says in verse 18, God granted repentance to the Gentiles. He granted it. It's a work of God. Even our repentance is a work of God. We can't change on our own. We can't repent on our own. It is a supernatural work of God in the soul of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to completely disown self and sin and to turn to God. All too often, repentance is just equated with sorrow. And yet, I would remind you, Pharaoh admitted he sinned. Judas, the son of perdition, wept. And Paul says there is a sorrow that does lead to repentance, but there's an also a different type of worldly sorrow. And it means nothing before the Lord. Really, it boils down to this. I want you to turn here. Job chapter 42. Job 42. Again, the proof that it is a supernatural work of God. Job is a righteous man. He's endured so much. The loss of basically everything. Even his best friends are there and they're just blasting him over a sin that he never committed. He never claimed to be sinless. He just says, I don't know any sin to repent of. I don't know. He had lived a righteous life. He was a blameless and righteous man, a man who feared God and turned away from evil. And God said that about him. In Job 42, verses 5 and 6, as we read this, there was one issue, though, with Job. In going through this whole ordeal, he thought that God deserved, that he deserved to go before God and have a speaking or a trial with God to acquit himself. There was an issue of pride that snuck in. Even though he was innocent, he became guilty of pride. Here's what Job says after God speaks to him directly. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He had heard all about the Lord. I have heard about you. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But here's the supernatural work. There was a revelation to Job. He saw the Lord. 
in some mysterious way, and I hope that you can understand this. When you were saved, God spoke to you directly. But now my eyes see you, Lord. I'm guilty. I abhor myself. I have been wrong. Therefore, I repent. I retract. I turn away in dust and ashes. You are right. I am wrong. Repentance is a supernatural work of God, and that is part of salvation. But secondly, according to Mark 15, faith. Faith is also required. Time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. What is faith? Some people declare this to be a blind leap in the dark. Just have faith. Just have faith. Let's let the Bible speak for us this morning and describe to us what is faith. And let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. It's very quiet. You guys following me? Okay. (laughs) Hebrews 11. Verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. There's God's definition of faith. Now, he says that and he says that clearly, but... I think there's still quite a bit of confusion about that in a lot of people. I'm going to describe to you a scenario. I've got to think of one here about faith. And this is what I think a lot of Christians believe faith is. Let's say I believed that Aaron Filburn over there is Superman. I have the assurance that I hope he is Superman. It's the first part of Hebrews 11.1. I have the assurance and I hope for he is Superman. And I have the conviction of things not seen. I've never seen him in a cape. I've never seen him as Clark Kent. And thank the Lord I've never seen him in spandex. (laughs) True. Praise God for that. But is that really faith? A lot of people would say, yeah, it's faith. It's faith. My friends, faith is not a leap into the dark. Rather, it's a leap into the light. It is a leap into the light. Faith is a supernatural work of God. How in the world can we have assurance, true assurance, of something we hope for? Assurance. I tell you, because God said so. God, in a way, you had a revelation, and the Spirit of God testified through the Word of God that this is true. How in the world can you believe something that you've never seen? 
I'll tell you. God spoke to you and revealed it to you. And you would rather die than disbelieve that. It's what it is. How else could it be? What is faith? It's, it's that. It is like, if you want to look at it this way, faith is a complete throwing yourself upon Christ. It is like you are on the side of a mountain. And it is so snowing and so bitterly cold and sleet is coming down upon you and you've got to get off that mountain or you're going to die. You're on a little ledge and you're clinging to the rocks and just putting one foot out in front of another holding on with your dear life and the wind is howling about you. And then you reach your hand out as you're stepping along and you find an opening, a cave. You can get out of the snow. You can be safe. And you throw yourself in the cave. And you are going to stay in there even if 20 bodybuilders tried to drag you out. No, you're going to stay in that clave. You're clinging on. Have we thrown ourselves on Christ? Have we thrown ourselves totally on Christ? Have we done what Jesus commands us to do when he said, if you desire to come after me to be my disciple, you must deny yourself? Deny yourself to the point where you are willing to die to take up a cross and to follow me. That's faith. That's faith. Can we truly say on Christ the solid rock we stand? All other ground is sinking sand. So much could be, more could be said. But I, ter- I dare not go on any longer with that. That is faith. Turn back to Psalm 8. Oh, well, wait a second. Hold that thought. And I do have to say this. We have to have faith in the gospel. That's what Mark 1.15 says. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe. Have faith in the gospel. What is the gospel? It's this. We're born a sinner. And out of God's rich abundance, out of his mind, out of his will, he decided to have a people for his own possession. And so the father came up with this plan, and the son says, I will go and I will redeem those people. Send me, father. Here am I, send me. So Jesus condescends greatly and becomes man, a baby, born of a virgin lives a perfect life that we couldn't live, perfectly obeyed the law. And I'm just, even this week as I was instructing my students on this, it was vitally essential in all points of the law. 
Even when he was eight days old, it was essential that Jesus was circumcised to fulfill the Levitical law. And he perfectly kept the law that we cannot keep from infancy to childhood to adulthood. Part of the plan of God was that someone has to die because of sin. The wages of sin is death. Someone had to be crushed under God's wrath. God would not be just if he just let us go and said, hey, all's forgiven, no problem. He would not be a good or just God. So he takes a son, his only beloved son. He nails him to the cross. On the cross, it pleased the Father to pour out all of his fury, his hatred, his holy violence upon the one whom he loves the most. In the cup of the Father's wrath, Jesus drinks down completely. And when he cries, it is finished. He turns the cup over, not one drop of God's wrath spilled out. He took it all. He was buried. But more important than that, and even just as important as the crucifixion, a dead Savior cannot save. He rises from the dead, victorious over the tomb. It is in a way that the Son vindicates the Father's holiness on the cross. In the resurrection, the Father vindicates the Son's perfection and holiness. Death could not keep him. Are we throwing ourselves and trusting in that? Have we come before God and said, I am only trusting in the work of your son and his work on the cross. And if that is not enough, God, then I perish because I only cling to that. There is no hope for me if that is not enough because that is my all in all. That is my hope. That's what it means to believe in the gospel. Now we can turn back to Psalm 8. And I think you can see why I needed to make that point. Third question to be asked, how do we know? How do I know I'm saved? How can we have assurance of our salvation? Seems to be quite a bit of confusion about this. Quite a bit. A lot of times people confuse the aspect of God's preserving a Christian, once saved, always saved, with the assurance, which is something that we have that we're saved. They're two separate things. 
One is a work of God and the other to be assured of it. I mean, God has to give that to us as well, but it's a totally different thing to actually have peace in our hearts. I met many a people that I would say, you know what, they really are trusting in Jesus. It's very clear by the fruit of their lives, but they have no assurance in their hearts that they're saved. And their lives are kind of miserable because of it, I hate to say. No peace. No peace. I remember my second year working where I work. And I remember another one of my colleagues kind of telling us in a meeting what she had said to a, a student who was questioning whether or not they were saved. And yet I had seen this student, and there was all kinds of issues in his life. He had every right to actually question He needed to do business with the Lord. Her advice was this. Have you asked Jesus into your heart? Well, yeah. Well, then it's the devil who's causing you to question this. You're saved. Knock it off. Really wished I would have opened my mouth and said, how do you know it's not the Holy Spirit convicting this person to ask that question? Are you calling God the devil? Do we know that we're saved because some pastor told us? Okay, you don't doubt. You've asked God into your heart. Were you sincere about it? Yeah, I think I was sincere. Are you going to trust a heart that is deceitful? and wicked above all things, so much so who can understand it, according to Jeremiah 17, 9. You're going to trust that? Or a mind that has been messed up by sin? Because you think you were sincere? How do I know I'm saved? How can I have peace and assurance in this life that when I stand before God, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into, the, enter into the rooms that I've prepared for you. Enter into rest. Take your armor off. Here is a white robe. Enjoy. Psalm 8. Look again at verse 1. I promise we'll get more... <laughs> into this, since this is the last question to be asked. But I want to focus on one last word, and we've already gone through the first part of uh, the first verse. We've looked at Yahweh. We look what it means for him to be our. But if he really is ours, what is he? He's the Lord. Adonai. Our master. It's the lordship of Jesus Christ. How do I know I am saved? Is Jesus your master? 
Is Jesus your master? Have you personally experienced that his yoke is easy and his burden is light? Have you put his yoke upon yourself? And it is true. He gets in that yoke with you and he pulls. His burden is light. He is a good master. Far too many people say I'm saved and I know I'm saved because I did something when it really should be. I know that I'm saved because God has done something in me. Don't you find it it's easy to serve the one whom you love? Think back to the time, especially those of you who are married, first met your spouse. They can call you up in the middle of the night because, but because you love them, it's a joy to talk to them on the phone. If they ask you to do something, you're going to do it. Because you love them. You're passionate about them. We can go through, and we're going to go through seven points how we know that we are saved from the psalm. But it really just boils down to one thing. Is the Lord the Lord of your lives? And do you passionately love him? And it's pretty easy to know our passions. What do we think about the most? What do we talk about the most? That's our passion. That's our desire. That's what we want. You get together with friends to talk about the Lord. When you're uh, even by yourself, are you thinking about God? It's kind of interesting that, you know what? True Christianity is the only real religion that is humble. Ask a Muslim, how do you know you're saved? Well, I study the Quran. I made the pilgrimages. I give alms to the needy. I pray towards Mecca. I'm a righteous person. Ask a Jew, Orthodox Jewish man, how do you know you're saved? I love the law. I strain to keep the law. I'm a righteous man. I obey it. I look forward to the Messiah who will come. Then a person asks a Christian, a genuine believer, how do you know you're saved? In sin, my mother conceived me. I've rebelled against God. I've broken all of his laws so many times I cannot count. I'm a very depraved individual. Person would say, whoa, 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 whoa. All these other people gave great evidence why they're saved. What confidence do you have? Everything has been negative. 
Christian would answer. Because my hope is in him who lived 2,000 years ago and who suffered the wrath that should have fell on me and died in my place. And I don't count anything I have done to be of any significance. I claim only Christ and Christ alone, my good man. And that is why I know I am saved. Because I serve a mighty Savior. It's the only true religion that is humble. So how do I know I am saved? Because Yahweh is my Lord, my Master. How do we see this in the text? Look at verse 1. O Lord, our Lord... How majestic is your name in all the earth. First of all, it should produce the fruit of we view the world differently. We're strangers and aliens. We're We're making a pilgrimage through this world. This world is not our own. We look for a world to come whose author, whose foundation is the Lord. And so here is David. He's looking and he's seeing all this and he's saying, look, when I see this world, I see God in his glory. He can get up and say, wow, what an amazing sunrise. Praise God. He goes through life and he sees things in the world and it's not praise or adoration towards people. It's all a praise towards God because how majestic is God's name in all the earth? When we view the world, do we view it differently? And think, instead of thinking that the world revolves around us, that this world revolves around God and therefore it is there to praise God? Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament above proclaims his handiwork. Do we view this world differently, all centered towards the praise of God? That's one thing that gives us assurance. And I'm different there. Praise God. Secondly, Are we all struck by God's transcendence? Notice what he says at the end of verse 1. You have set your glory, and here's the key word, above the heavens. God's glory, his attributes, who God is, cannot be contained in this world. God is an infinite God. And so the only way that David could describe this is saying, your glory, who you are, God, this world cannot contain. You have set your glory even above the heavens. Even though this world declares who you are, and we should recognize that, and I I worship you for that, there's so much more. Your glory is above it all. It is like he is saying, if I drew a line from here to the end of the universe, and we still haven't figured out where that is, Your glory is even above that. Oh, Lord. 
I can barely grasp how amazing you are. All too often, I think, people, we think that we have God figured out. And according to what's going on here, God is mind-blowing in his glory. His glory. We would view the world differently if we're saved. We would be amazed, awestruck by God's transcendence, his, his infinitude. And third, we'll rest in God's sovereign strength. We will rest in God's sovereign strength. We see that in verse 2. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you, God, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Notice what's going on here. It's out of the mouth of babies and infants. These are the two most helpless beings that you can have. A baby, an infant. They can do nothing on their own except for eating and pooping and crying. They're pretty good at that. They can't provide for themselves. They can't put a roof over their head. And yet it's saying, God is saying, I'm taking the absolute weak, the weakest of the weak. Why? To show God's strength. And confounding and confusing and defeating God's enemies. Look, at the Christian life is absolutely impossible. If we do it in our own strength, it is impossible. But if we give up, if we repent, if we unconditionally surrender our lives to Christ and live in His strength, amazing things happen. Amazing things happen. We will only see heaven through the sovereign strength of a sovereign, omnipotent God. Four. The fourth truth and how we should know that we're saved is salvation produces humility. Humility. Look at verses three and four. When I looked in the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. David looks at it all, I'm sure as a shepherd, um, much of his life or the early part of his life, he stood out at night and gazed upon the stars. Saw the magnificence of it all and he felt so small in comparison. Lord, why would you even care for me? I'm nothing. That's a humble heart. I mean, honestly, seriously, I could stand before you in all honesty today and say, you know what? I could see why Jesus would die and it, 
if he wanted to die and save every single human being in the world but me, I could see that as totally fair. The only thing I can't grasp is why in the world would he die for me? I have no answer. I have nothing. I am so unworthy and so insignificant in every way. I see some of you nodding your heads because you can understand what I feel. If it's not about us and it's about God, then it, it produces in us a humble heart. God declares war on the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Fifth point. We'll rest in God's love if we're saved. And we can know that we're saved if we are resting in God's love. And again, look at verse 4. The amazing thing is, and David gets this. Yeah, he's brought down and he's low and he's humbled. But what is inferred here? God does care for me. God does look upon me. God does love Let me ask you this. Maybe you've been through it. You've had one of those days. You wake up in the morning and you have that peaceful, devotional, quiet time with God. It's like, yes. You go to work and you're working for the Lord. You meet an unbeliever and you share with them about Jesus. You go home, you put your head on your pillow at night and you're so glad and happy. Then you have a day where you get up in the morning, but you overslept, you hit the snooze too much. No quiet time with God. Go to work, you have a bad attitude, not working for the Lord, you're just doing it all in your own strength. Have the opportunity to share, but you're like, uh, this person might reject me. So you don't open your mouth and you go home and Late that night, you feel so miserable. I'll tell you something, I might set you free right here. A lot of you are probably a lot more holy than I am, but I'm probably a lot more happy than some of you. I'm resting in God's love. It does not depend on what I do. My joy does not come from my performance. It comes from the finished work of Christ. Yeah, I understand we should have a conviction over sin when we do what we're not supposed to do, when we don't share the gospel and being close to God in His Word. But we need the rest in God's love, His unconditional love as His children. David did, and think about that man's life and all the major sins he committed. Horrible parent, horrible. 
murderer, adulterer. Still you read the Psalms and here's a man who rested in God's love and who loved God and was trusting only in the Savior to come. Our salvation does not rest upon us or our performance. It rests in the finished work of Christ and his love displayed by, to human beings as us as Christ died on the cross. Six point. If we're saved, we can know we're saved if we're a good steward, a godly steward. Look in verses five through eight. You have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angels, yet have crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. you put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish in the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You, Lord, have given man the dominion over these things. Isn't this the charge that God gave originally to the first man, Adam? And care for the garden, keep it in order, name the animals, have dominion over this earth, subdue it. Now the real issue is, are we doing that? Do we view everything as a gift from God? Lord, this body is not my body, it's your body. You are the one who should direct it. So this body is given to you. I'm trying to be a good steward of this body for you. Lord, my time is not my time. It is your time. And you are the one that is to direct it. And so I lay my time before you, Lord. And I ask that you give me wisdom on how I am to spend that time. Father, my friends are no longer my friends. They're your friends. And if I have to cut some of them away, so be it. Lord, my possessions are not my possessions, but your possessions. I no longer trust money for my security. My wealth is my substance in life. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. May I give what you have given me back to you, because you own it all already, for the furtherance of your kingdom. My dreams are not my dreams, Lord. Give me your dreams. My desires, I want to be your desires, Lord. Are we a good steward of all that we have and all that we are to all that God is? And finally, perseverance and worship. Notice how the psalm ends. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The same way it starts. It ends that way. It's bookended. And it's almost as David is saying who God is, our relationship to the Lord, and the assurance of our salvation that he's his master, that we're, he's my master, that influence, that's the beginning of my day, it's the end of my day, and everything in between is influenced by it. Do we persevere in worship? Persevere in worshiping Him with our lives, our attitudes, our possessions, everything that we are?